All right, Chaz, the grit for the week of Thanksgiving. We are actually not together right now and so not sad. publishing an episode. Where are you right now? I am in the mountains. What are you drinking? Screaming Eagle? <laughs> I wish. Mm. We're drinking Negronis and red wine to celebrate Thanksgiving. Thankful. We pre-mixed the Negronis down uh, the mountain and brought them up in a hydro flask. So once five o'clock hits, we can each just have a pre-mixed Negroni poured Smart. over ice, fresh orange wedge to go Smart. with it. Smart. Yeah. A Marciano cherry. Yep. Well, this way you don't have to bring three bottles of booze up to the mountains. You mix Great. it down. Great and idea. Bring it up in a hydro flask. What if somebody wants another Negroni? We've uh, measured it out for everybody's appropriate alcohol intake, and if they want too much, they can move on to wine. Great. Yeah. There's nothing so, like a, nothing like moving from Negroni to a lot of wine for a hangover. Exactly. <laughs> uh, well, so we're not together to discuss surf news this week, but what are we going to give the listeners? We are going to gift you one chapter of Reports from Hell. Excellent. Out just months ago. Still kind of fresh. Still kind of warm off the presses. This is your latest book. Latest book. Uh, and this is, I would argue, a fantastic gift to give for Christmas. It is a great Christmas gift, but here's a taste for you. Awesome. All right. Without further ado, Chaz, Reports little from teaser chapter from Reports from Hell. Reports from Hell, Chapter 2. Surfer Magazine's Dana Point Bureau was only vaguely aware of Yemen prior to Josh's and my stopping by unannounced one summer afternoon in 2002. It had been just under a year since a crew of Saudis, Egyptians, Emiratis, and an almost sympathetic Lebanese nerd hijacked four American and United Airlines flights, smashing them into New York's World Trade Center towers, the Pentagon, and a Pennsylvania field, ultimately marking the deadliest American day since Pearl Harbor. My phone began ringing off the hook very much too early on the morning of Tuesday, September 11, 2001. I rubbed my eyes, answered annoyed, and greeted my mother, who was beside herself with grief and furious at me for spending the past year defending Muslims, even radicalized ones, especially radicalized ones, to anyone who would listen. I didn't understand what she was talking about at the start. Planes hit what? Why? Who? She told me it was terrorism, Islamic terrorism. I had done six months in Egypt as part of a university undergraduate study abroad program and become enchanted by an idea, a reality, a way of life. As cliched or tacky as it is to become inspired by the Hegelian other, it had grabbed me. Egypt, fundamentalist Islam, exoticism, all of it, I dove in head first. They actually believe, I would tell anyone who would listen to my experience when I came home, they actually believe. They're willing to go all the damn way. You were wrong, she said through tears. You were wrong. And look now, who could do this? What kind of people could do this? She was usually cool-headed, and I was tired and confused. What was going on? She was even more furious that I was snoozing while the world burned. I flipped on the television and witnessed the unfolding coverage while she continued to demand answers. I didn't have any, and I didn't try and argue. Didn't try to advance fundamentalist Islam as the grand alternative discourse to vacant Western humanism, because watching the gates of hell open live, watching news organizations piece together that it was not an accident but a deliberate act, a deliberate act carried out in the name of Islam was heartrending. It was horrific, and for those first few minutes I hated Muslims too, and regretted every life choice I had made up until that point. I didn't have the intelligence to put the horror into any sort of context, so I just sat long after my mom hung up and stared at the horror with my head in my hands. 
The television rambled on, heeding my self-loathing. The whole thing felt otherworldly, like it wasn't really happening. I wasn't actively listening, but heard the name Osama bin Laden mentioned once, then twice, then non-stop as it began to materialize that he and his al-Qaeda were the number one suspects. The same man and network responsible for bombing the United States embassies in Kenya and Tanzania in 1998, and bombing the USS Cole in Aden, Yemen two years earlier. He was a striking figure, tall and angular, not necessarily menacing, with a knowing half-grin dancing on his lips and eyes that laughed. He wore a pillow on his head, just like Uncle Dave, and there was something darkly compelling about the man, something undeniably magnetic, some bizarre calm. Journalists and news anchors dug in, and a skeletal, a skeletal narrative began to form. A construction magnet grandfather, born on the Hadramaut coast of southern Yemen, who had emigrated to Saudi Arabia, a family deeply connected with Saudi royalty. Wealth, access, rigid belief. Bin Laden had fought the Soviets in Afghanistan, formed Al-Qaeda in Sudan, and dabbled in the Yugoslav wars. It was an interesting life by any stretch, though the only words that stuck in my head were Yemen and Hadramaut. Maybe it was because of my father. Along with the Lawrence of Arabia, he had introduced me to National Geographic, and his favorite features were always about Yemen. I don't know what specifically attracted him. The history? Maybe. It might have been the Queen of Sheba's kingdom or its striking, lightly trafficked beauty. All I remember is that when issues featuring Yemen came, he would point out the pictures and we would study together. Houses that looked like they were made from gingerbread. Trees that appeared to grow upside down and bleed red blood. Men with stern faces and curved knives on their belts. Women who looked like ninjas, dressed all in head-to-toe black with a menacing slit for the eyes. Yemen and Hadramaut. I pulled down an old Lonely Planet Middle East travel guide off my homemade cinder block and plywood bookshelf, the same one that I had taken to Egypt a year prior and flipped to, to the Yemen section. It was thin, almost non-existent, but featured some of the same pictures that I remembered from my youth, upside down trees and gingerbread houses. I studied the map, the way it dominated Southern Arabia, the way it almost kissed Africa, and found the Hadramaut region halfway toward Oman. I traced my finger along its coast. The apocalypse continued to play on the television, burning fire and terror, confusion and utter heartbreak, closed skies and political paralysis. I was still completely disgusted with Arabs and Islam and also with myself for falling so head over heels in love for the people and the religion now responsible for shifting the world off its axis. When I couldn't take it anymore, I shuffled out the door through the Hawaiian-themed Lanai Garden and down the street toward Josh's bungalow. He was home, packing his stodgy bag, ready to head off to UCLA for the day. I told him his Islamic studies classes were likely canceled. He looked at me confused, and I told him what was transpiring, as he didn't have a television and also regularly preached the dangers of modern technology. Josh didn't seem, seem surprised. We both slumped on the couch and chatted until the sun went down. He had a long view, had just come home from Pakistan and seen the agitation, and at the end he simply said, this is the way history works, bro. Convulsions and spasms. To imagine any different, to imagine that we are somehow removed from the long bend is ludicrous. He was not necessarily callous, but he was analytical, and it comforted me, allowing the pieces to reorder. Muslims weren't bad. History is filled with terror, horror, death, and destruction. I thought about that for a minute, then I said, what do you know about the Hadramaut in Yemen? He sauntered to his vintage mid-century modern bookshelf, featuring some, of the, some sort of reclaimed wood, and pulled down an oversized atlas that he had borrowed from UCLA's library. Opened it to the pages featuring Yemen, and we both stared at the yellowing pages. What ocean is that, I asked him. Indian. Like same Indian that bakes all those perfect Indonesian waves? Same. Hmm. 
The next few weeks spooled out as expected. President George W. Bush had ordered a thundering explosion of the Taliban in Afghanistan as initial pay payback, snagging Johnny Walker Lind in the rubble, and was making the case for a second front in Iraq while kicking various tires from Mauritania to the Philippines. War had been declared on terror, wherever terror made its home, wherever terror drank its tea or prayed to Allah. The world was united, coalitions built, internal security apparatuses bol bolstered, personal freedoms put on hold, and balled up fists shaken at television cameras. We will not let the terrorists win. Yemen? Surfer silver-haired executive editor Sam George asked while squinting back and forth from me to Josh, then Josh to me. Isn't that where Osama bin Laden is from? Exactly, I nodded, happy that it was at least somewhat first in terror's new and evolving narrative. Well, isn't it dangerous? Extremely, but look here, I motioned toward Josh, who hauled the same oversized atlas out of his briefcase and slammed it onto Mr. George's desk, flipping the pages until arriving at the Arabian Peninsula. So, he said, drawing a finger up the coast from Aden to the border with Oman, the mainland coast should catch the same Indian Ocean swell as the Maldives. There are all sorts of ancient accounts detailing shipwrecks and rough water here. He pointed to a giant bite near Oman. Obviously, there are waves somewhere and its modern exploration has been extraordinarily limited. Very few Westerners have been outside the major cities, certainly no surfers. A starburst bounced off Mr. George's dangly earring as he tilted his head to take in the map, studying the undulations and exotically named towns being kissed by the Arabian Sea. As he sought further clarification, he asked, but like, how dangerous? It's the most heavily armed nation on earth per capita with no central control, famous for kidnapping foreigners and its own government troops alike, I told him. It's where the USS Cole was bombed right before 9-11, where Osama bin Laden found his true followers, who Muhammad himself also happened to praise in the Hadiths, and, and has a particularly virulent uh, faction of Al-Qaeda growing unchecked in all areas will be reconnoitering. Could you take a pro with you, Mr. George asked, studying us both for the first time, someone who can really surf? Josh leaned back in his chair, shaking his head back and forth, out of the question. We're uniquely skilled, I added. It would be impossible for some damn pro surfer to move the way we do in these lands, and we can't be responsible for his safety. Simply not possible, Josh emphasized again while twiddling his thumbs and looking up at the ceiling. Anyhow, I interjected, this is about finding surf, obviously, and surfing it competently, which don't worry about that, because we do. But it's mostly about interpreting our brave new world. What is this age of terror? What does it actually mean to go to war against it? How can we live in it? What new fun can be had in the margins? You must understand that. This trip will actually be meaningful. Radical Islamic, fundamental, radical Islamic fundamentalism is the new alternative discourse, Josh added. I looked over a minute and nodded. It really was. And for the both of us. I had a brief crisis of faith when my mother called me on 9-11, but what's a best friend for if not this? If not to drag a best friend back from the precipice of sensibility and guide him back to the path of true, harsh, dogmatic belief, where gray is less a color than a sin. In truth, genuine sacrificial belief made much more sense than anything does. We had been raised in different households, but both of us as Christians, serious church every Sunday, Bible before bed, not smoking or swearing or drinking or carousing Christians, and met at Bible college with the same values. We weren't fundamentalists per se, as the, world, as the word has become so loaded as to only be used in order to garner some visceral reaction. But we were believers, and other believers were trying to burn the world down based on faith, or the, I'm sorry, and other believers trying to burn the world down based on faith was understandable and felt exciting. This radical Islamic fundamentalism was the most potent idea of our lifetime, and not to be there on the ground while it was bubbling from the earth, dancing with it, playing with it, splashing in it, was 
a possibly worse than kidnapping, sickness, or death. Walt Whitman's version of a secular paradise on earth had gone up in flames. This, whatever this actually was, was the future, and it was happening right now. Surfer Magazine's readership demands a first-hand view of the new revolution. Booties on the ground, I closed, while Sam George confusedly rubbed his clean-shaven chin. We left with a promise for a that a $3,000 check would be mailed in the next week or so for a feature to be published upon our return. We need a photographer, airline tickets, visas, special permission passes to travel through all the various travel areas, guns, surfboards, money, a needle, and some thread. How are we going to get our visas, I asked Josh as we walked toward his older Nissan pickup. Let's call Nate, he responded. What about a photographer? Our man's already embedded. He's one of the best young Arabic language scholars around and just so happens to be studying in Yemen's capital. Josh was right. Nate secured our visas within 10 days. He had never served a day in his life, having been born and raised in landlocked Bolivia as the child of missionaries, but he could sort through seemingly overwhelming problems via his proprietary combination of steady determination and inscrutable international speak. He had been forced to perform in a folk music troupe with his two brothers and three sisters, singing Spanish songs to the churches his, family's, his family visited when they came back to the United States on furlough, and therefore had been embarrassed more in his first 15 years of life than the average man is over a lifetime. He didn't care about bucking societal norms, asking awkward questions, doing whatever it took. He was simply used to pressing ahead and not taking no for an answer, pressing, pushing slowly but steadily, wearing down opposition like an Old Testament prophet. After I dumped all his orange juice down the sink to teach him a lesson about telling me what to do, he offered to give me a haircut. I sat on the porch as he snipped and realized he didn't care about emotional ups and downs, about whims. He cared about an almost extinct form of brotherhood and a never giving up. Yemeni visas were not given, being given out to Americans like candy. Mostly they were not being given out at all, but Nate had determinedly emailed a local Yemeni FedEx affiliate and was sent up the chain all the way to Yemen's ex-president's son, who happened to own Yemen's FedEx franchises. He told us to fly into Sana'a and everything would be worked out no problem. He had gone to university in America, apparently, and had windsurfed at some point, therefore understood the importance of our mission, or so he thought. In my experience, windsurfers are generally very strange folk who don't understand much of anything. I took care of our money by convincing the failing surf brand Ocean Pacific that our surfer feature about Yemen would give it credibility in this new age of terror, and was given another $3,000 and went and got some free sunglasses and t-shirts from Spy, free shoes from a brand named Savior that had evangelical overtones, free surfboards from JC and Costa Mesa by way of Hawaii, and free surf traction from a startup called Stick Grip. What are we going to do with all these sunglasses, Josh asked, with six months left to go until our scheduled departure? I don't think $6,000 minus airfare, camera, and film would be enough to surf check Yemen for three months. We're going to wear them and look cool. Also, are you kidding me? $6,000 is an absolute fortune. I think it might even be too much money. To be fair, I had never gotten near $6,000 at one point in my entire life, and so it did feel like an infinite sum. But Josh had grown up in rural Minnesota and started a construction company with his brother when he was 12 years old, smashing nails in sub-zero temperatures, and so he understood real cost. He took care of our other money by applying for a UCLA study grant and promising to enroll in the same Yemeni Arabic language school as our theoretical photographer. We spent the rest of the time practicing our surf skills in Manhattan Beach, right off the pier, AKA California's dirtiest and most worthless wave. A wave that could even take a competent surfer and erode their ability down to adult learner level. Josh, Nate, and I bobbed in the tiny filth, paddling for closeouts, praising each other's terrible bottom turns, and Nate's determined paddling when we weren't otherwise talking about fundamentalism, 
parsing Quranic verses over Americanos and dreaming of the adventure to come.